Hello and welcome to season two of The Personhood Project. I'm your host, Aaron Tyler Hand. In this podcast, we explore poetry's ability to help process trauma, spur personal growth, and reduce recidivism in the carceral system. If these topics are of interest to you, we ask that you follow us on Twitter and subscribe wherever you are currently listening. Joining me today is poet and teacher Jose Hernandez Diaz. He is the author of the chapbook, The Fire Eater, a 2020 release from Texas Review Press, as well as a forthcoming full-length collection titled Bad Mexican, Bad American, out of Acer Books in 2024. In addition, he is also a 2017 National Endowment of the Arts Fellow. Thank you so much for joining me, Jose. Thank you for having me. It's an honor to be here. People listening won't know what kind of... um, things we've been going through today to get this to work, but I appreciate that we've stuck with it and we're making this happen. For sure. Uh, You probably don't realize this, but I became familiar with your work when you did a virtual reading for Porterhouse Review, which is a journal put out of this MFA program that I'm here at Texas State University. Um, Yeah, I I was lucky enough to see you read at that event. It might have been almost a year ago now. Uh, But yeah, yeah, I was really drawn to your work at that event, which was really exciting to see you like you know participating in something that i do the the review editing for the journal but it was still like just being part of that journal and seeing you read for it was great yeah that was a good time um i think they published one of my prose poems and uh invited me to the reading and and um yeah that was a memorable event yeah i think one thing that really drew me to your work is how much personal information you kind of put into your work. Um, I was just hoping just to kind of get things started off here. Can you speak on adding the personal to your poetry and then how you divide the personal with what we call the speaker of the poem? I think it just varies on, on each poem. Some poems are completely true to my real life experiences. Other poems are a mixture of um, persona and, and uh, real life events and then other poems are completely persona. So they just, um, they range in terms of their, the voice and, and um, exactly what I'm telling, if it's true or not. Do you have one of those that kind of guides the poem when you start out writing it? Or is it like you sit down on the paper, you start writing and it just, you might have a persona take hold or you might have your own personal experience take hold. Is that how it yeah, works for you? That's a great question. Um, typically, when I'm writing about my experiences growing up, uh, first gen, low income in Southern California as a Mexican American, I tended to keep it pretty um, autobiographical and, and real. And I don't really fabricate much of that experience. Maybe if I don't want to get into specifics for that poem for whatever reason, I will just sort of, um, you know, use an angular approach. But I won't necessarily lie in it, you know? And then when I'm working with more persona prose poems that are more surreal or absurdist, more playful, um, subversive, then I'm more inclined to use persona and, and uh, improvise uh, with the speaker's voice in, in those poems, prose poems. So basically when I'm talking about my, you know, real life growing up, I tend to, to, be straightforward, upfront about it. Um, and then when I'm more playful, experimental with um, persona prose poetry, then, you know, 
there's more invitation to to just improvise and and uh, just make sure the poem um, maintains its own aesthetic there as opposed to real life experience. Yeah, totally. That definitely makes sense. And having that separation can be helpful too. I mean, at least in my experience, kind of writing, like sometimes you sit down for me and I think, all right, there is this thing I want to talk about. There's this subject in my life that I want to talk about. And sometimes it just, it feels like it makes the most sense if I, you know, like you say, you can subvert some things, you can kind of guide where it goes, but, you know, talking about the truth is what's most important. But then there's those other times when, you know, the world I'm creating in my work is what's guiding it. And, you know, snippets of the nonfiction might find its place in there, but it's really that world kind of guiding itself. Yeah. Every now and then I'll have a piece that sort of blends both, but it's a little bit tricky sometimes. Like I wrote one called El Mariachi, Mm -hmm. which was about my father Um, in, in this prose poem, in this poem, um, persona poem, I was playing with the idea that my father was like sort of like a folk um, mariachi player in Mexico and that he had, he had acquired like a following that was loyal to him, but he was not that big sort of living the starving artist lifestyle of a mariachi singer, Mm -hmm. which is not really true to my father's actual experience, but it was just sort of a metaphor for his, his struggle and his, um, you know, sacrifices that he's done and sort of being, you know, underappreciated in my view. And um, so I sort of gave him an importance in the poem that perhaps his real life doesn't have, you know? So yeah, it's sort totally. of like cel- celebrating him as something like a mariachi singer, which in Mexican culture is pretty much, um, you know, the highest form of musician. So, <laughs> Yeah, definitely. I mean, at- just by putting your father in that place in this new role that, you know, he never was in real life. We see this celebration of his life. We see this like idea of what this man might've meant to you. So we we can understand like, why he might not have been this in real life, like just by you deciding to put him there, it like, it puts us in a place of understanding how you felt about him. Definitely. And also in that piece, I even say something like, um, you know, my father opened up for Jose Alfredo Jimenez. And then I say, my father um, played his guitar on the surface of the moon, which is obviously not true. So the hyperbole (laughs) there is Mm -hmm. just sort of like, I'll I'll say anything just to praise my father, you know? Mm -hmm. Oh, that's such a beautiful sentiment too. Just thinking about, you know, just this idea of Granadino you're an adult, but you're still the child of your father and being this child of your father and thinking my, my, my dad played on the moon. Like that's just such a cool visual place to take it. Well, I think it's also rooted in uh, not just in the father's son, but also in the immigrant father, you mm-hmm. know, my father immigrated from Mexico, had to work the lowest jobs in America, never required respect in any, in any way from, mm-hmm. from those employment um, positions. So that's why I'm sort of celebrating him as a mariachi singer. And um, so it's not just, um, you know, father, son, but also the political, social realities of the immigrant experience, which often, you know, break down individuals, um, you know, working minimum wage jobs in dishwashing and and things like that. You know what I mean? Yeah, totally. Kind of going off of that, um, your chapbook, The Fire Eater, 
just in reading reviews online, it has been described with words like surreal and magical. So I'm just kind of curious how, you know, talking about this immigrant experience, talking about this lower class first gen experience, what about going to the magical and surreal just helped you express those stories? Yeah, that's a great question. So my, my chat book is entirely um, surreal prose poetry. However, my full length, Bad Mexican, Bad American, is split between um, linear verse about my real life, um, the immigrant experience, the first gen experience, my first gen experience, my family's immigrant experience, the Latinx, Chicano experience in general. And so those poems are about my real life in the first half. And the second half is, is um, surreal, absurdist prose poetry. And in terms of what draws me to that, I think a lot of it is escape and um, imagination and improvisation and, and just uh, being subversive and, and wanting to express myself. And, you know, I think oftentimes when you're Latino, they, they think you can only write about your suffering or, or mm-hmm. you know, gangs and, and the graffiti on the wall but you're not allowed to be an artist. You know what I mean? You can't mm-hmm. create, you can't use your imagination um, because that, that should, that's not as important as socioeconomics and politics. So that's why I split my manuscript into two. And um, even in my query letter, I would tell some of the editors that the reason that I do it is because I don't want to just talk about hardship. I want to talk about perseverance and also express myself as an experimental um, prose poet. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's so beautiful to think about. Like, you didn't want to be trapped in this box that, you know, so too often editors try to put on, you know, first-gen Mexican-American poets who are like, you need to write about the suffering that you went through, your family went through. You're like, no, I want to celebrate. I want to write about this in a completely different way. I want to show this surreal this magic that is you know the immigrants coming to america it is the first gen lower income family it is the person you know working the minimum wage jobs so that's a beautiful way of thinking about it yeah and um, sometimes you know it can feel like they're two different worlds you know mm-hmm. the surrealist absurdist um, aesthetic especially in terms of the the influence of some of the writers who tend to be, you know, middle-class American white writers. Yeah. Um, but I sort of try to just make it my own, you know, inspired by their playfulness of James Tate, for example, mm-hmm. um, some of the deadpan approaches that he has to language and, and uh, dialogue that inspired me. But obviously, you know, I have to make it my own. And, you know, I incorporate, you know, Mexican-American imagery. You know, I have one about a jaguar in my garage that I found when I was lifting weights. So, you know, inspired by the grades, but also obviously trying to make it my own. Yeah. I mean, I think that's perfect. And also, it also shows that, you know, you're a student of poetry. So you understand, you know, who the, you know, quote unquote, like classics are, but you're saying like, Hey, I don't necessarily feel like this shows my experience or like my family's experience. So I need to, I need to make sure we're being heard as well. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think um, I tried to read, you know, when I first started writing, I was initially just reading um, poets of color, Mm -hmm. political poetry, 
you know, I was mostly writing protest poetry. Mm-hmm. And um, I saw James Tate's uh, selected works there at the library. And the cover spoke to me. It was like a Dolly surrealist painting on the oh, cover. Cool. Not literally Dolly, but Dolly yeah. esque. Mm-hmm. And um, so I said, this looks interesting, but I don't really read white male poets, you know, um, just because of in terms of the sort of monopoly they've, they had on on English language literature, you know? Totally fair. And, yeah, and definitely. And the academy and everything. So, you know, I felt like I was rebelling and stuff. But anyways, mm-hmm. the painting spoke to me. I said, let me check this out. And then I read it and I was like, there's no line break. Mm-hmm. These were like little stories because they were prose poems. Mm-hmm. And I was just drawn to it and in terms of the accessibility. Yet, you know, it seems simple and it would lull you in. Yet it was it was like deep and profound. And mm-hmm. it, it was something like I've never read before. And uh, that's when I started writing prose poems in 2014 or 15 around then. You've kind of stuck with it. It sounds like even in your first full length it has several prose poems is there something about that style outside of like his influence that helped like that made sense to you when you're writing yeah i'm not sure i mean i think i like the subversive nature of the prose poem you know Mm -hmm. the prose poem does not have a fancy appeal to it it goes to the end of the page it's Mm -hmm. about a paragraph or too long not too intimidating i personally have always had trouble with novels because of my attention span. Oh, totally. Um, yeah, I, I just like, um, I can't really read a whole novel. Like I'm just, the attention span, you know? No, so, I totally um, get that. So then then a prose poem is not as intimidating and it's um, accessible and um, it can also be very profound, you know, less is more sometimes. Mm-hmm. So that's what spoke to me. And um you know, I think initially I wanted to be a short story writer um, following uh, J.D. Salinger and uh, John Paul Sartre and um, in high school when I was reading those folks. And um, so I think, you know, when I started writing protest poetry, I liked it. But um, prose poetry was just another vehicle to uh, explore and experiment. And um, I haven't looked back. That's so cool. I I think, yeah, I don't know, there's something about the prose form. I, I mean, I, I'm i someone like you who, you know, struggles to hold my attention with reading longer things and just something about the prose form just feels like it can connect for me to like all kinds of writers. Like you don't have to be someone who cares about poetry to connect to the prose form just because it's something familiar to people who, you know, read on the daily. So I do, I too have an interest in the prose form. So that's really cool. Thank you. Yeah, I think, um, you know, it's a little bit more accessible in the sense there's no line breaks. You don't have to try to um, understand or dissect what's going on with that. Mm -hmm. Um, The language and prose is a little more approachable, less, um, you know, less fancy footwork, although they can (laughs) can have, you know, there's definitely poetic elements involved. But um, yeah, there's something about it. Um, It's kind of like a misfit and, um, you know, that spoke to me as well. You know, I've always, I was always interested in, you know, underground rap and, mm-hmm. and uh, indie rock and, you know, it had to be like different, you know? Yeah. So I think the prose poem kind of fits that in poetry for me in terms of being a hybrid form and sort of uh, elusive and subversive, you know, I always look up, you know, um, 
lectures on on prose poetry to try mm-hmm. to explain it, and the lecturer usually just throws in the towel and, and says that it's sort of this is gray area, you know, and it's pretty much impossible to to completely um, explain what a prose poem is in definitive, you know, terms that it can be open-ended and gray area. Just kind of curious, kind of going off this idea, knowing that you're a teacher, is there like a different way that you teach a prose poem or maybe do you teach prose poems first, like to introductory students? I just think of this idea of kind of it being this almost gateway into poetry, the way you're kind of talking about it as how it's accessible to other people. So I'm just kind of curious how, you might teach prose compared to, you know, say another style or of poem. Yeah, I definitely think that um, it could be a gateway to poetry. Mm -hmm. Um, From my experience, I've mostly been working with generative workshops. So the people, the folks that I work with, they tend to have a poetry background Mm -hmm. and want to experiment with prose poetry. So, um, but I think that's definitely possible what you're saying and likely that it can lead to interest in poetry. Um, but what I tend to do is I, I show them a few of the masters, Charles Simich, um, Ray Gonzalez, Marosa de Giorgio, um, some examples, you know, like five examples of, of um, some, some, some masterful uh, prose poems, and um, also include an essay by Charles Simich in um, Plume, magazine which is like two three pages very accessible Mm -hmm. uh talking about the subversive nature of prose poetry how it came through Baudelaire in terms of the western um prose poem and um so you know do a little background a little bit of examples um and then I show some of mine as well and then we jump into my prompts um which I create specifically for those classes and um also show them an example that I wrote to the prompt and um, I'll even show them the first draft of it and the final product to show how writing can improve through editing, through the editing revision process um, with, you know, imagery and specifying uh, the imagery or, or just fine tuning it with um, the two examples there of first and last draft. I love that idea of bringing in multiple stages of the draft. Uh, that's something I would love to do in our classrooms. Unfortunately, our classrooms are they're short. Um, you know, we only meet once a week, and there's several different blocks that we have to meet with, and they can't come together into one block. And you know, we only get about thirty minutes. But someday we're working towards longer classroom times and having bigger classroom sizes, and to where we can come in and show them. And I think that would be such a cool thing to work with is showing like, Hey, here's what a first draft looks like. Here's maybe even like a fifth draft. And then here's a final draft. So people can understand that greatness doesn't have to be like something that just strikes you like lightning. It, it, it takes time to get to that process of a finished, great, amazing poem. Yeah, definitely. Um, initially when I started the workshops, I would tell the students that most of it, I did it in the first draft. And then I started writing them and I said, no, look at, I'm, I'm going back and I'm editing it um, for, you know, 15, 20 minutes, 30 minutes. So then I started documenting the process and realizing that the initial inspiration um, is not, is usually not 
the finished product. Mm-hmm. And that's when I, now I make it a habit of documenting the drafts and uh, it's a, yeah, it's a good exercise that's and example for idea. students. Yeah. yeah. such a great idea. I just want to change topics for a minute, just cause you know, I kind of brought up the people in our classrooms and you know, the, in the end that like this, everything I do here is for them trying to get them excited about poetry and trying to get them, you know, to have an outlet to share their story and things like that. And, and sitting down with your work in the classroom, I know a lot of the people in our program related to certain aspects of your writing, kind of specifically when you talked about growing up and uh, feeling the pull from gangs and seeing graffiti artists, you know, do their work around where you lived. And I'm just hoping you can kind of talk a little bit about, or maybe just share a little bit about your upbringing and the ways you were able to kind of turn away from the lifestyle that might've been pulling you in. Yeah. I grew up in Northern Orange County, which is like a working class section of Orange County. And I would go back and forth between Northern Orange County and Southeast LA, which is a predominantly um, immigrant community. And um, growing up, you know, I have a twin brother and an older brother. And um, my twin brother, you know, he was, uh, he's a good guy. He would always get straight A's, but uh, he did, you know, for a while there, he was running with gangs and, uh, and then he got us, he, uh, he got kicked out of our, of our high school. And um, so we had to, we had to move to, to Southeast LA to also, it was a bigger house. So we moved over there and, um, and um, it was different culturally over there um, where, where I've been now for the last 20 years. So I'm used to it now, but initially I was like, Oh, they're throwing me to the lions, you know, like <laughs> I'm this OC kid over here who grew up with like people who skateboard and surf. And now I'm going to like gang territory, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, so I was worried about that and just stuck to myself a lot, uh, skated around to avoid people. And, um, but now, you know, it's, it's the place where I want to be, where I prefer to live um, and plan to stay here for a while. But um, so, yeah, I just grew up with, you know, brothers, not just brothers, but different folks that were involved um, in that it's pretty hard not to be around it when you're Mexican American first generation um, growing up and, you know, oftentimes in low rent apartments, the graffiti is everywhere. Um, you know, my friends were also graffiti arts, but they tend to be more, um, in the artistic hip underground hip hop style, mm-hmm. um, you know, of, of master, you know, pieces and things like that. But, you know, there's also gang graffiti and throughout the neighborhood. So yeah, you know, you grow up to that, you become desensitized from that. You realize they're just, um, people who often did not have the same opportunities like I had in Northern Orange County going to a, a middle-class school even though I was never middle class, I grew up, you know, we had like eight people in, in a two bedroom apartment, but we grew up in a nice neighborhood. Mm-hmm. So middle class neighborhood. So we got to see both worlds, you know? Yeah. Yeah. In our preliminary and- interview, you mentioned how poetry allows you to turn lemons into lemonade. I'm hoping you could just kind of speak on what you meant by that. And then also, you know, give some tips and tricks to our, people in our program for like how they might be able to turn the lemons from their life into some lemonade through the creative writing process or through poetry. Yeah. You know, first of all, this is mostly um, due to the fact that I had a sister growing up that 
she was an English major, so that appealed to me. Um, she was about nine years older than me. And then also I had a, a high school teacher that, um, you know, I was getting C's, playing football, getting suspended for fighting, um, not really into school, listening to Rage Against the Machine. <laughs> and um, she assigned an essay about the American dream. And I just quoted it using a song by Rage Against the Machine about the American dream is hypocrisy, brutality, the elite. And, and I, I used that in my essay to write like a, a, you know, a logical structured essay. And she was like, wow, this is really good. And she gave me an A wow. and I was like, wow, I was just trying to be rebellious. You know? was, <laughs> and she's like, that, you know, that's, it's really good writing and I should not have a C in, in her class or any other class and um, that I was talented at writing. So from then on, when, when she told me um, that I was good at writing, I sort of just like held on to that. And mm. I would tell people I was a writer, you know, oh, I would go great. to the bookstore and I started buying books on my own mm. and no one had ever told me I was good at anything other than sports, you know? Mm -hmm. So that was just like, that changed my life. And um I went to community college because my grades were still not good enough to get um, into a college. But after that teacher in my junior year, I got straight A's in all my classes after that. And then in community college, I got straight A's um, and I transferred to UC Berkeley and majored in English. And um, I forget the initial question. But... <laughs> no, this is great. I was just asking, um, you mentioned how poetry allows you to turn lemons into lemonade and, you know, just kind of thinking about some of the sour experiences that our writers might've had in their life that they could turn into lemonade through their writing and just maybe any tips you can offer of like, you know, how to approach um, looking at things in your life when you're writing about them. Yeah. That's one thing that I learned about poetry was that often the, the little moments or something that troubled you, you can write about it and become empowered by it, you know, using art um, and understanding the literary things that I, that I learned in school, I could use them for my everyday life. Mm -hmm. You know, I just thought, Oh, well, you know, John Dunn, I, I don't care about John Dunn. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah, it sounds great. You know, beautiful language. sounds like a long time ago, you know, mm -hmm. does not seem relevant to me, mm -hmm. but when I started, um, reading contemporary poetry, um, you know, diverse poetry. And um, I started to see writers like Martina Spada who would write about something um, like, like the fact that there was not a, a stoplight at um, on the block where he grew up and, you know, someone got ran over by a car and just sort of, I saw how, how poetry could also empower and you mm -hmm. could give voice at least to something that wasn't right. Mm-hmm. Or just um, you know, difficult circumstances that that are otherwise seen as you know lemons, and and you can make something out of it and get it published, and you know, oftentimes in in great journals, which which I always thought was um, fascinating. Just you know, this this kid who whose parents are from Mexico and and grew up you know the way I did in terms of you know first gen low income. And then I'm getting published next to this professor who's like, you know, <laughs> um, tenured professor, distinguished mm -hmm. professor in, 
you know, some, some fancy terms there. I'm just like, you know, it's humbling and, and, but at the same time, that's what poetry can do. You know, exactly. it empowers you to be up there with, with um, the heavyweights. Yeah. I think there's a lot to what you were saying a little bit ago about, you know, seeing and connecting in the poetry, like seeing something of yourself or of your community or of your experiences in the poetry. And, you know, not many people nowadays could read a John Donne poem and be like, oh yeah, I relate to that. Like there's just, it's just, you know, yeah. as the years go by, there's more and more disconnect from it. But, you know, the people in our program could read a Jose Hernandez Diaz poem and be like, oh yeah, that sounds a lot like where I grew up that, you know, as we'll get into a little bit like, oh yeah, having graffiti everywhere. That sounds a lot like where I grew up too. Like, you know, being able to read poems like that is what I try to bring into the classrooms is like, that's why I was so excited to have you join us and work with us in this project is because like, I, I just had a feeling that you would relate to, um, or the people I should say in the program could find a connection to your work and then see poetry in this new way, you know, too often, you know, when we get a new student in the classroom, they're like, they think poetry has to rhyme or something like that, you know, just like breaking this whole idea of what poetry is and show them like, Hey, like you were saying, here are contemporary poets who, you know, might have a voice or that sounds similar to yours or might have an experience that was similar to yours. And here's how they write about it. So you could take these ideas and maybe write about your own experiences as well. Yeah. I think, you know, I did the same thing where I started writing poetry that I thought had to rhyme and, you know, sound, um, old fashioned and distinguished. And I was reading a lot of Petrarch, but um, I started reading Will and Carlos Williams and he's talking about no ideas, but in things and imagery and specificity of, of everyday images. And, um, you know, we, we can use those in our own lives as well as working class folks mm-hmm. where the graffiti, you know, symbolizes something um, the 99 cent store, you know, um, I, I always wanted to write a, a prose poem called shoplifting from the 99 cents. <laughs> I always thought that title sounds like, but um, anyway, so, you know, we can use that idea of, I don't do that anyway. I'm not promoting that. I just thought <laughs> it was like a striking. No, it's a great title. Line, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. But yeah, I don't, I don't do that. But um, <laughs> so yeah, the idea of, you know, no ideas, but in things, imagery, specificity, but we can do that for ourselves. It doesn't just have to be the you know upper middle class that uses these ideas. Mm-hmm. It can also work in a working class setting, you know? No, yeah, I think that's such a beautiful way to put it. And um, yeah, I promise we will not spread the rumor that Jose steals <laughs> from the 99 cent store. <laughs> Although I did, when I was 14 or 15, get arrested for stealing um, cheesecake from... from um, Hometown buffet. Oh, we snuck in through the exit. Oh, and they, and they caught us. <laughs> and um, and I didn't even want to go, but um, my friends convinced me, and I was driving, so I took took them, and um, and I I wasn't hungry, so I just had one slice of cheesecake, <laughs> and yeah, I got informal probation for that as a fifteen year old. <laughs> Who knew you could get arrested for sneaking into hometown buffet and eating a slice of cheesecake? That's pretty wild. No, I mean, it makes sense. I mean, yeah. it's it's the law. You know, we were yeah. kids and it's not like we were starving to death. We were just, it was before a football game and we were just trying to pass the time, you know, being mm-hmm. dumb kids. Yep. Yeah, yeah. That's the thing. Just 
kids trying to have fun and just not, you know, fully understanding the consequences of things until unfortunately something like that happens. Exactly. I would love to take this time to transition to the second half of our podcast here. So for those of you who are not familiar with our podcast in the second half, we have Jose read one of his poems and then we have him read the poems inspired by his work. So I take some of Jose's work as well as some writing prompts around his work into a classroom in uh, central Texas and the jails that we go into. And I teach about creative writing or I teach about poetry around his work. And then I collect poems that were inspired by him. And that's kind of what guides the second half of this podcast. So just to get things started out here, Jose, would you please read your poem, Buildings Roman of a Disadvantaged Brown Kid? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Buildings Roman of a Disadvantaged Brown Kid, published in Cherry Tree. You are more of an observer than a participant. You knew right from wrong, but didn't always do right. You had less than others did, but more natural gifts. Your parents sacrificed a lot for you to be a late bloomer. It didn't rain much in childhood, but that's not saying much. Sometimes you'd come home after sunset, but you were just playing ball. Some of your friends and siblings took fateful wrong turns, but you're still alive and you've no fear of tomorrow. You're still alive and statistics mean nothing to you. You're still alive with the flame in your hand. Thank you so much for reading. That's very beautiful. That that last line, every time I would teach this in the classroom, when we got to that last line, it was just like a, oh, coming out of me. Just It's such oh, a good ending that. line. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so this is the point when I, I also read the writing prompt we take into the classroom. So again, for first-time listeners, uh, this writing prompt will be on our website, roughdrafttx.org. And I like to just share it to help inspire you all to write as well and just to kind of understand where the poems were coming from that were inspired by Jose's work. A building's roman is when a poet or author uses a piece of writing to explore the surroundings of one's formative years. In the case of Buildings Roman of a Disadvantaged Brown Kid, we see Diaz share what it was like for him growing up in a low-income Latinx family and how those years still affect him to this day. Take this idea and have your own hand at writing a Buildings Roman. What can you share about your childhood? What aspects of your childhood are still affecting you to this day? Which disadvantages did you grow up with that led you down your life's path? After reading that, would you want to go ahead and read the first untitled poem inspired by your work, please? Definitely. I grew up in a broken home. My mama was there, but daddy was gone. So most of the shit I had to learn on my own. You were there for me all along, from when I was a baby until I was grown. It's so hard not to cry when I hear your song. Just know I'll see you one day in heaven with open arms. This was a letter to my mom's. Ever since my tea passed, they say I don't have a backbone. They said I should be dead, but I guess I'm just that strong. Thank you for reading that. My pleasure. One thing that really stands out to me in this poem that's working really well is the subtle rhyme scheme that it has going on to it's, it's mostly using end rhymes, but you don't feel like caught up in the end rhymes because of how the lines are in jammed and it, it kind of helps 
guide the poem, but it doesn't feel distracting from the poem. Yeah, they're not as heavy-handed. The rhymes are it's more natural and uh, seamless, so that, like you said, it does. It's not awkward. It, it flows very well. Um, you almost you almost might not even notice that it rhymes if you just uh, weren't focused on it. But um, it does have a musicality to it because of that. And um, yeah, I just like the stripped down approach as well. The language, there's not a word that you want to take out or add in, you know. So I'm always impressed by that with um, the ability for the writer to, to have just the, right, um, just the right amount of words in there and uh, good word choice. Yeah, totally. I definitely agree. And I think sitting down, because I have this in front of me, and again, for those first-time listeners on roughdrafttx.org, you also find these poems, so you can read the poems inspired by um, Jose's work. But so when you're just listening to it, as you're doing here on the podcast, you the the rhymes are not obvious, but when you're sitting on the page, you know, they're all end rhymes for the most part. There are a few cases, a few end lines that, you know, aren't rhymed, but it's a lot more visual, but hearing you read it right now and just kind of the way you're flowing through things, like you said, it just felt more natural. They didn't feel forced. And I think a lot of that has to do with how carefully it was constructed. Like each word, like you said, was chosen for a specific reason. Each word was, um, there's no filler in here. It feels very purposeful. Yeah. And sometimes you can, you can um, achieve that effect of the rhyme being not so obvious or a little more subtle with, with near rhyme. Mm -hmm. And some of these are near rhymes as well. Mm -hmm. So that helps as well. Yeah. When it's, when it's more like a perfect rhyme, sometimes it sounds a little bit, you know, sing songy or like Mm -hmm. nursery rhyme or something. But um, when, when you use near rhyme, um, it still accentuates the sound of it in a more subtle way, I think. Yeah, another thing I want to point out that I think works really well in this is um, some of the enjambed lines, or one specifically I, I really like is towards the middle of the poem, um, it just, this line carries over with open arms from the previous line, but the next part of the line is, this was a letter, line break, to my mom's line break ever since my tea passed line break just something about taking that time and having to my mom's on its own line and it's also a shorter line compared to all the other ones which are you know five six seven words long this one's only three words and it it's visually looks shorter and just something about that you know this almost ode or you know, something to the writer's mom that just really feels that connection and having it stand out just makes us as readers understand how important she was to him. Yeah. I think you could even call it, um, ode to moms, you know, mm-hmm. and, um, the way that the language flows without punctuation until you get to the line, this was a letter to my mom's and now there's punctuation, um, for the emphasis, and for that ode, you know, to mom. Yeah, exactly. I think that'd be an, a great title suggestion. I'll, I'll, granted, they'll be able to hear this, but I'll definitely let them know that you recommended that and for their editing process in there. But yeah, this is such for a sure. great poem and such a powerful turn at the end, just letting us know who this is about. Even though, like, you know, the beginning of the poem is like, this is how I grew up and this is what it was like for me. But then we get this turn that is like, just to let you know this was a letter to my mom's and you know, this is like the impact this person has had on my life. It's great. 
Yeah, and, and they mentioned, um, you know, daddy was gone, so the single mother household and just the way mothers often are anchors in, in our communities. And mm -hmm. um, I've written probably like six or seven odes to my mom, you know, <laughs> and yeah. six or seven to my dad as well. So, yeah, I think um, that, um, that there's always territory there to explore in terms of odes to uh, mothers and to families. Mm -hmm. I definitely, the first, the first um, section of my first um, manuscript full length is um, entirely odes to the family. Oh yeah. That's beautiful. It's, it's a great way of thinking about honoring your family through writing and, you know, just sharing, you know, like you may not have much, like I don't have much to offer you, but this simple thing of writing about you is like such a, such an honor. You know what? That's what really spoke to me when I started reading poetry. Mm -hmm. I started realizing that I was acquiring language skills and the ability to write, you know, publishable literature. Mm -hmm. But it's not like I wanted to just therefore escape my reality all the time and write about something else. It was like I want to I want to use this these gifts that I have to honor those who have sacrificed for me, mm -hmm. my parents as immigrants crossing the border, coming here, working jobs that nobody else wants to do, getting no praise for it. Um, in fact, there's laws that target folks like my parents. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? So when I, what I want to do with, with my gifts, um, you know, I have a, a poem in the Georgia Review about my, about my mother. Um, and to me, it's, it's special to be in the Georgia Review, but it's more special to honor someone who has, who has done so much for me, you know? Yeah, no, I totally agree. I have a few poems about my mom out there in the world as well. And there's just, yeah, just something about, you know, I might not have the right things to say in person, but yeah. sitting down and putting my thoughts together and having this poem and then having someone else like recognize it and publish it just feels like a special honor to, you know, someone we love. Definitely. Kind of looking at it from the other side of things, could you read the next poem for us, Formula for Being a Parent Slash Dad? Yeah, definitely. A formula for being a parent slash dad. Having a single parent is a challenge. It may not have a dad to teach you how to be a man or father. Interaction and listening to other kids and seeing other families helped show life lessons and start a formula. Interaction may not have always been positive, but it was still a formula for right from wrong. Formula for what it's like and expectations of being a parent. We may not have been the best parents, but the formula for love was always there, whether it was holidays or birthdays or when they were sick or hurt, the formula was there. The formula for good times and bad times. The formula of love guided the way. The formula you created to raise your children in your eyes with everlasting love. Whether the formula was used for discipline or gifts on holidays and birthdays, the formula for quiet evenings, watching TV, laughing and joking. The formula was used for nightmares and bad dreams. The formula for graduating school and being successful. The formula for sports and not giving up. The formula for raising loving, honest children. The formula for success or life and work. The formula to be successful and positive. For this formula will be what our children use as an outline for their own formula to raise their children, our grandkids, 
the formula to be a loving, caring, educating dad. Yeah, it's interesting. These two poems kind of back to back in our conversation where we were writing from this children's point of view or the child's point of view. And then we have this poem written from the parent's point of view and what they have been doing, you know, to help, you know, guide their child through life, which is just interesting to think about, especially, you know, the things you were trying to honor of your parents through your writing. So this is just feels really cool seeing this poem afterwards. Yeah, I think um, it's important to understand the relationships in our lives as fathers, as children, as brothers. And and uh, um, all poems have a voice and a perspective. And this one, like you said, it's interesting, especially after after um, reading the perspective of, of um, a son. Yeah, totally. I think that, again, just for people who maybe don't have this poem pulled up in front of them, this is a prose poem and it's a, it's a bigger yeah. blocked prose poem and I think the driving force, obviously, in just listening to it and reading it on the page is this repetition of the formula, the formula, the formula over and over. And it's done so well in this poem. It's just like it helps pull you from line to line that you don't feel like bogged down by, you know, like a block of paragraph. You feel like it's guiding you from one to the next. And we also get some other repetitions talking about holidays and birthdays and success and positivity and you know, just like all of these forms of repetition that help feel us grounded in this poem and are kind of guiding us through it. Yeah, that's a good word. Um, grounded and the way that it guides the poem, um, the positive experiences. Um, in prose poetry, often there is repetition, like you said, mm-hmm. a formula here which shapes and guides the poem. And I did notice that a lot of these poems, they're very similar to the contemporary poems being published today in literary magazines but they're a little more rooted in reality and experience, mm-hmm. um, you know, hardship and, and uh, struggle and, and overcoming. And, and um, so that's what I did notice. I, I took from that where the contemporary forms that are incorporated, like the prose poem, but um, a little more rooted, obviously, in, in, um, in uh, the struggle to overcome. As yeah, a definitely. I know several people in our classroom, including this poet here, they, you know, when they first come to the classroom or in some days, you know, we have conversation before things get going and we've had the conversation where it's like what I see or hear about what it's like being incarcerated or what it's like in like my shoes as presented in the media is, is never right. Like, and I want to share what it's really like for me or for someone like me. And I think that's why you know, I try to teach about persona and I try to teach about the speaker, but, you know, I feel like so many of them are interested in sharing their story just because of the unfortunate reality of our culture and the fortunate reality that, you know, what is seen about people who are in the carceral system is, you know, one way, but the reality for what people, what it's like for people in the carceral system is typically completely different. Yeah, Definitely. I think a lot of times um, it's almost a privilege to to experiment with things like persona and, and mm-hmm. um, a lot of these uh, creative outlets, whereas you're just trying to, you know, um, oftentimes use it as sort of therapy to to build and and um, make structure for your life. And um, yeah, so I think it has more like a therapeutic element when you're locked up and, you know, unfortunately. Yeah, totally. I think that definitely makes sense. And 
you know, like part of our project is we want to help people use creative writing as a way to work through traumas as we, you know, we heard from the introduction and, you know, part of that is sharing your story and the reality of your story. So I appreciate someone like this poet who is like sharing what it's like for them being a father who has found themselves locked up and like the ways that are trying to still be there for their children um, in any way they can. And, you know, they talk about changing things and creating this formula that their children can pass on to their children and their children and their children. They just want to have, you know, something solid to pass on. So it's really, really cool seeing them kind of work through these things and share them with the world. Yeah. And that's something like they're passing down to their, their offspring is Mm -hmm. the idea of a formula. You know, how do you, how do you survive? How do you become successful? You have formulas that, teach you how to to respond to crisis and to different situations there's a formula for school you know what i mean so Mm -hmm. i think that the way that formula works to just sort of it it just covers a lot of bases here yeah totally yeah if you don't mind i would love to move on to your second poem here roots that cracked the pavement would you mind reading that yeah let me just pull it up here um here it is Roots that cracked the pavement. I was born in a small apartment with giant roots that cracked the pavement. We ate frijoles and tortillas every day with rice and cheese, sometimes carne asada on birthdays or holidays. I grew up in a rough neighborhood of low-rent apartments, which was inside a larger, good neighborhood with middle-class homes. I didn't notice this until we went to high school and most of the kids drove brand new cars and had new stylish clothes from the mall. I had some new clothes too, but mostly a lot of hand-me-downs and clothes from garage sales. I drove a 92 Chevrolet Corsica that had been defaced by rival gang members. No, I wasn't in a gang, never interested me, but my brother had borrowed the car. It's a long story. Anyway, this apartment I grew up in, it had giant brown roots that cracked the pavement, the pavement full of graffiti, with graffiti names like Screwy, Dosik, Zoner, Chaos, Gato, all of these first-gen guys from the neighborhood growing up like me between cultures, between poverty and wealth, trying to make a name for themselves, for the neighborhood. Thank you. I love this poem. I love how just honest it feels, but also how um, conversational it feels with the things like anyway and the it's a long story just those small details that just make it feel so genuine yeah I also I want, think, sorry go for it oh yeah no i think often the transitions they help guide the otherwise otherwise heavy content you know mm-hmm. because to the speaker to me it's this is just my life you know it's not it's not something that this poem is not fabricated at all so mm-hmm. um it's easy to t- talk about those things when when you when you live through them, you know. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. So we sometimes that's what poetry does in, in terms of um it helps give voice to a lot of those experiences that you grew up with that, you know, perhaps traumatic or perhaps um, you know, you were ashamed of or or were difficult for you when you when you put them in a poem and, and you make sense of it and um and you feel empowered by your past as opposed to ashamed of it or mm-hmm. or anything like that. Oh, yeah, that's great. I mean, I think that 
that's a lot about we have two poems inspired by this one and i think both of them kind of look at that same idea as like how can i be inspired by my past as opposed to like letting it kind of pull me down anymore like i want to i want to move on and just kind of reveal what's behind the curtain a bit i would love to read the writing prompt inspired by this poem that we took into the classroom just again so anyone listening could use it on their own time or just have a better understanding of what we were kind of looking at inside the classroom. In Roots That Crack the Pavement, we see Diaz paint a vivid picture of his surroundings during his adolescent years. The names he mentions include meals he ate and the specific car he owned. He describes in detail the apartment and neighborhood he grew up in. He goes as far as talking about specific people and figures in his life that shaped and give character to his home. Use this idea to write a poem about where you grew up. Like Diaz, get specific about the things you were eating, the car you drove, the school you went to, anything that helps show the unique culture that your neighborhood fostered. Would you mind reading the M's, the poem inspired by your work? Yeah, that's a great prompt, by the way. Thank you. Um, The M's. A lifetime ago in the shadow of my poppy. Look out, boy, I'm trying to learn you. Callous fingers, snappy, snappy. It's about the M's, our favorite letter. Remember the M's, ain't nothing better. Moonshine, marijuana, mescaline, mushrooms, meth. I'm passing you knowledge to carry past my death. We make or grow it, and it makes us money. It makes us dollars, or it just don't make sense. We reside, we reside in mountains and hills, riding motorcycles. I've made a name in the game. Shit, I should be your idol. We may be of poverty means, but stash a molehill of fortune and fame. I caused a lot of mayhem, and it begins our last name. From, from military to militia, we fought for America. Mind me, boy, member son, don't let the man get you. Take what I teach and what I preach. Escape these hills. Get and stake it. Thank you so much for reading that. This poem, uh, I ever since the 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 person in the classroom read the poem out loud, I was just like kind of blown away by this idea of they took on the persona of their father, and it's just kind of like the advice the father gave them, you know, growing up yeah. in a poetic form, and it's just. It's just kind of like, wow, the world he lived in or came from is, you know, just being someone who didn't have that same environment growing up, just like understanding and just who this person is based off, you know, the environment their father had for them in this poem is is kind of wild to think about. Yeah, I think um, a lot of times what poems can do is when we use the vernacular and the everyday language of our neighborhoods, Mm -hmm. um, our localities, um, it brings this, it brings the reader to that world, you know, Mm -hmm. um, with slang and, and, um, the way that folks spoke growing up for him, you know, his father and the voice and the dialogue used, I think it really helps bring us into that world of, you know, where the M's were prominent and, and, um, how folks grow up in those environments and we just wonder why they end up in jail, but you know, the environments are, aren't necessarily um, always, you know, the same that other folks grow up in and, you know, there's often struggle and, and um, things that, that we need to overcome. Um, 
so yeah i think this this poem really gives voice to their experience oh and, yeah uh, and it, yeah it's a beautiful voice too like the rhythm or the cadence yeah. of this poem is just like it kind of bounces from word to word and um how it looks like on the page just for those who are listening and not following along like it's all the odd number lines are you know left marginalized and all the even number lines have tabbed over so it's kind of like this like almost back and forth kind of exactly. dance that follows the rhythm of the poem and it's done really well I think it helps to mimic that, you know, the, mm -hmm. the way the indentation um, utilizes um, that, that back and forth um, aesthetic on the page. Oh yeah, I totally agree. And just, we get some more rhyme in this one, just like the other one, a lot of them are kind of slant rhymes a little bit, or they're softer rhymes like meth and death is a little harder. We have pappy and snappy snappy, but um, letter and better but again like they're not distracting they feel almost like they're guiding the poem it almost feels like in the rhythm and things like that it almost feels like watching or you know when you were reading it it felt like you know listening to like some beat poet from the 70s you know kind of how they're like grooving into the you know the cadence of things yeah the, that's often how poems are written as well in the cadence of of um the language and mm -hmm. the ability to improvise and flow, you know, a lot mm -hmm. of rappers, that's, um, that's the art of, of rapping is imp imp improvisation and um, not falling down with the next line, but, you know, accentuating it and delivering. Mm -hmm. And again, just, I know you already praised it, but I'm going to praise it as well. The, the use of the dialogue that came from the region, this, this man originally from the Appalachian mountains and you just, it, the fact that, you know, people don't feel this necessity to write and, you know, like this, this archaic capital E idea of what English is, right. which isn't, you know, the case, like there are many, many Englishes and the fact that he's like, I want to share what it sounded like for me growing up. I really appreciate that. I think sometimes, um, oftentimes people, especially if you come from a, working class or low income background, you think I can't write poetry because mm -hmm. not, not, not to say that all folks speak the same way, but if, if you use more slang, for example, in, in your language, um, you didn't grow up speaking, you know, the Queens English or the Kings English now, but, <laughs> uh, you know, so we think, Oh, well, John Dunn is, you know, far away from me and my reality and specifically the language, but no, oftentimes um, you can incorporate, your you know regional um, language and and um, and vernacular and and that's often what is powerful because we see different experiences that um, maybe we didn't maybe we wouldn't have heard um, otherwise. No, yeah, totally. I couldn't agree more, and it's something I definitely try to emphasize in the classroom. It's just like I know you all want to share your story, and I want you to do it as authentically as possible, like. And if sure. you don't feel like you need to do it that way, that's totally fine. I'm not going to, you know, I'm not pushing you in one direction, but I encourage you to at least try. Yeah. We have an untitled poem inspired by your poem. Would you want to read that one as well? Definitely. Idlewood Cove. That's the street that made me. Sweetbriar is the neighborhood I called home for all my formative years. 5905 was the address of the house. Inside were yellow-tinted walls from all the cigarette smoke. 
we were poor and got hand-me-downs, but I learned early on that I can get things on my own. And my family has all done better since hanging out on the block, drinking, smoking, getting fucked up, and plenty of other things I shouldn't have been doing. Growing up in the 80s and 90s, listening to rap music, things were different then. We grew up different. Now I can appreciate what I didn't then. Now, if only I could change the habits that I started so long ago. I'm 45 now, which is also the neighborhood I grew up in, in South Austin, Texas. It still defines me to this day. Nibro, my last name, means new bridge in Norwegian. If only now I could build a new bridge to a better life, but still keep qualities of who I am. We see a lot of direct influence from this one or from your poem into this one, kind of describing the neighborhood. And we get the, you know, the talking about wanting to be different and kind of getting pulled into a bad life. And, you know, we, then we get kind of the metaphor at the end as well with the new bridge. But at the same time, while we feel the inspiration, like if I read this one on the own, on its own, kind of away from yours, like it stands on its own so well, it feels like such a powerful poem of just being like this is where i grew up it you know it pulls in an honoring way from yours but it doesn't it does it in a way that makes it so unique to its own world definitely um and oftentimes you know writing poetry you, you read other poetry and it inspires um it could be one image it could be the word hand-me-downs that mm -hmm. inspires you to write something you know but then mm -hmm. you just you just make it your own and um, I like how this almost looks like a prose poem, yeah. but they do end up using the line break. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure if they use the, you know, the justified text. And, but yeah, it looks rather um, beautiful that way in a, in a box um, format. I, I had a, a title for this one suggestion as well, but I, I forgot it right now. <laughs> Before the interview, I had it in my head. No, oh, no but, worries yeah. at all. If you think of it, please email me and I'll, I'd love yeah. to pass it to them. Yeah, I will. I will. One thing I love about this one is how specific it gets. Like, you know, we get the exact neighborhood name. We get the street name. We can even yep. get the street, the house number. We get the city. We get the inside where yellow tinted walls from all the cigarette smoke. Like it really feels like, you know, we're on Google Maps and it's just like zoom in, zoom in, zoom in, zoom in. And we get what it looked what it looks like and then what it felt like we even get growing up in the 80s and 90s listening to rap music we get what it sounded like like we're getting so many sensory details pulling in this poem yeah i think uh specificity is often what makes contemporary poetry it mm -hmm. brings us brings us into that reality you know they got the neighborhood the street the address the <laughs> cigarette smoke the yellow, you know, the yellow tinted walls, mm -hmm. the block drinking, smoking, everything that that brings you in with the imagery. Um, even rap music, you could even get even more specific listening yeah. to, you know, ETE or whoever, he's whoever they're listening to. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, oftentimes with the writers that I work with on editorial feedback, one of the things we work on is imagery, mm -hmm. specificity of imagery and how... Um, these images can, can bring readers into your world. Yeah. I mean, I totally agree. And I, I love how it zooms in and zooms in and zoom in. And I love this idea of like, Hey, where could you even zoom in a little more? Where can you get a little yeah. more specific even like, 
that's such like a fun way of making it even more personal and even more of like, Hey, this was what my reality was like in the eighties and nineties listening to rap music. Well, which rap music, you know, like we get that zoom in effect with the house. Like we go from like Austin to the neighborhood, to the street name, to the house number, to what the walls look like. Like how else could you do that? That's a cool suggestion. You, do, you know what I really liked as well was mm-hmm. how masterful the ending is, mm-hmm. you know, they're listing a lot of the experience. So how do they end it? Oh, well, my last name happens to mean New Bridge in Norwegian, which, by the way, I'm looking for, you know, a new bridge to a better life. It's like, that's clever, you know? Yeah. Um, oftentimes, ending is, is, is probably the hardest part in poetry, mm-hmm. beginning and ending. Um, but once you got it going, it's like, okay, how am I going to land this thing? And um, they do it with the, the interesting um, reference there of the last name and the how it breaks down in Norwegian. I thought that was, and that's going to the roots as well, you know, yeah. the Norwegian roots. And mm-hmm. that was clever. No, I really enjoyed that. And I really enjoyed, you know, this, like, it's, it's almost like unexpected, which in a really good way. And it's like, I would have never guessed when I read like the first two thirds of this poem that would end, you know, talking about the poet's last name and then, you know, what their hopes for the future were, but seeing it on there at the, as the last, you know, couple sentences of this, prose poem like it just makes so much sense and it connects in in a way that makes the lines before it like deeper so yeah the yeah last... you could even call it that new bridge mm-hmm. or um, you know nebro means mm-hmm. new bridge or something like that you know mm, that's such a beautiful suggestion i'll definitely be passing that along for sure we have one more of your poems here that we took into the classroom would you please read i never had a mexican-american teacher growing up Yeah, my pleasure. I never had a Mexican-American teacher growing up or any teacher that wasn't white, just stating some facts. My teachers were wonderful, white as they were, but I guess that's part of why I don't feel comfortable as a teacher. Never seen a Mexican male English teacher. Also, since I'm introverted, I think would find any excuse not to stand in front of a group of strangers. My therapist tells me maybe I can be that teacher one day for someone else that brown teacher talking about poetry, comparing a father's hands to battlefields and strawberry fields. Maybe I could be that teacher one day, today perhaps, who teaches a brown boy how to sing, not in song, but in stories and in verse. Thank you so much for sharing that poem. It's such a treat getting to hear you read them for this project and just kind of this one-on-one setting. So thank you. Yeah, my pleasure. This one was actually stripped down a little bit by my editor at uh, Acre Books. Oh, cool. Yeah. To get it more um, direct, I think, Mm -hmm. is the, yeah. Just take a second here. I want to read the writing prompt inspired by this piece. Sounds good. Diaz uses I never had a Mexican-American teacher growing up to share what it was like for him as a Latinx boy who only had white teachers. Through advice from his therapist, he explores what it would be like if he was the brown teacher that he always wanted. With this in mind, write a poem about what was missing from your education. If you could go back in time and teach yourself something that you wish you had learned at a young age, what would it be? Going off that prompt, would you want to read the untitled poem that was inspired by this piece? Yeah, my pleasure. Untitled number three. If I could go back in time, 
I would change the things I did wrong. I could write and write and make a song. If I could go back in time, I would laugh and enjoy life. I would go back and make things right. I did have a suggestion for this one too. Oh yeah, please. For the, for the title, Time Machine. Oh you know? yeah, simple, but it, like it just ties in so well. I love that yeah. idea. I love that you're giving suggestions. Like to be honest, like that hasn't happened on this um, podcast before. But I know well, only because that... it's untitled. You know. Yeah, untitled, yeah, totally. Yeah. I mean, no, I, no, nothing against that idea of offering the suggestions. I love it because I know I'm actually, it's you a... know, obviously this recording is happening well before anyone's listening to this episode. But I'm going yeah. in tomorrow back into you know the classroom and. I'm just so excited to just share everything that you've said and then share these suggestions because I know they're going to be excited about them as well. So thank you for thank those. You. It's also what I do for a living. So like, that's just my instinct is to like, you know, title things. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah, as an editor. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think that um, one of the things that really draws me to this poem, it's kind of short, broken up into small little stanzas is how like, it almost feels like a motto. It almost feels like, something you could hear someone telling themselves over and over. It's like, you know, this inspiration, like not something he just would go back and tell like a younger self as in the prompt kind of suggests, but like almost something you could tell yourself now too, to like work towards this betterness. Yeah. I think time, you know, time is, time is what rules everything. Right. (laughs) And the way that the past, the past is kind of never, never um, gone. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that this poem uses simplicity mm-hmm. to um, approach a topic that's huge, you know. Mm-hmm. And it, it reminds me of some of the classical Chinese poems with oh, the use yes. min- minimalism. And, mm-hmm. um, but you see the the indentation on the third line, mm-hmm. and on the second line, and the third line, like that little touch is masterful. I think mm-hmm. you know it adds a subtle um, touch to it that helps accentuate it and the pace of the poem is also beautiful and um yeah to me that this one explores um large concepts through minimalism no i totally agree and i know i'm just sharing a little about the poet like this classroom that they came in and wrote this poem was one of the first times they'd ever really written poetry or felt comfortable writing poetry so just seeing just seeing what they were able to accomplish and in like the small details of indenting a third line and the line break choices and things like that. It's just so encouraging to see what else could come from them. Like, Oh yeah. If this is your first time I writing mean, something like this, like what else is hidden? Cause I know there's more. I was blown away when you told me that um, I thought I was going to be reading poems from people who like were, were barely first time exposed to poetry, you know, mm-hmm. maybe a couple of weeks, like you said, a class or something. But after I read it, especially with attention to the form and the way they incorporate everyday dialogue. I thought it was a, an advanced, you know, people who have been writing <laughs> for a couple of years at least, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that there's just a talent in people that who, you know, there that's, is. Yeah. that's like my mod, like kind of how I see things is like, you know, if you kind of expose people to the right contemporary poets that they can connect with, that exactly. they can find the talent within themselves, like if they see something they can relate to. So that's the biggest obstacle in poetry is not, it's not writing the poems. It's getting inspired to do it. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody first thinks, oh, poetry, that's corny. That's lame. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's boring. Who rhymes nowadays? <laughs> and then once you break it down and you're exposed 
to something like, for me, it was Octavio Paz, who was a Mexican poet. And I saw that poetry can be um, written by Mexicans, first of all. Mm -hmm. And um, just little things like that. When it's someone that looks like you, speaks like you, grew up a couple blocks from where you grew up, it's a little more inspiring. And um, you have more motivation and becomes less othered in terms of upper middle class or like elite, you know, mm -hmm. it grounds it, I think, and makes it accessible. No, totally. We have one more poem here inspired by your work. Would you read Possum Mouth? A Possum Mouth. I learned my letters from my singing with and along to Papa's cat gut strum. My Grammy learned me on my fingers and my feet how to, how to count any sums. Poppy and Mama taught their hillboy how to speak, but it wasn't right. Before I learned to sing with Papa, I was well-versed in cuss and fight. Wish I'd learned me some proper lessons long before I migrated down south. Could have circumvented the trouble fermented by my opossum mouth. Maybe then I'd have more friends not begging or um, not beginning so socially inept and less shit on my shins, knee deep in. Maybe out of the 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 who's go I'd kept. Thank you so much for reading that. It's such like a fun poem kind of, and it takes a different. Kind of like an E.E. Cummings poem or something yeah. with the, langu the playful language. You know? uh -huh. There's a lot of playful language. And I love um, just like taking the lessons learned from like family and how like what you wish you would have learned, but what you did learn and just like, oh, uh, and again, this is another one of those poems that feels like it takes us to this area of the country. It takes us to the natural language of this poet in a way that's just like, I appreciate so much hearing, you know, this hill boy use his natural language as pulling a term from the poem. Yeah. I think it's a great job with the prompt there. Um, you know, using a possum mouth, that's probably an expression that they're mm -hmm. familiar with and that helps um, guide us into the poem and the hill boy and the, the, the cuss and fight, the slang language um, that they use. Um, it's, it's expertly done really. And then the way that the form um, helps the pace of that also mm -hmm. the back and forth that we're talking about earlier mm -hmm. um, with the indentation, simple indentation like that can go a long way. Yeah. Again, these are on our website so you can see them visually, but it, it, it was very similar um, written out like the M's from earlier where the, the even number lines are marginalized left. And then the odd number line or sorry, the opposite of that, the odd number lines are marginalized left and the even number lines are indented. And we just get that back and forth that helps almost add to the playfulness of this poem and add to the cadence that, you know, it was originally kind of, all these words were said in and just, ah, oh, I just, I just love this poem and I appreciate how authentic it feels coming from you, this writer. And just, I just, I don't know. I, I try my best to read poems that are coming from the Ozark region, which, you know, a lot of Ozark natives kind of came from Appalachia where this poet is from originally Appalachia. Yeah. So just like, I appreciate when people pull in the language from their region and, you know, unfortunately you don't see a lot today, like using this language, even though, you know, like there's still a large number of people still using a language like this. So I just really appreciate that. He's trying to like keep his language alive and show that like, Hey, this exists and this is how they talk. 
yeah, I appreciate that a lot as well. And even from my personal experience growing up, um, my Sunday school teacher was from Virginia mm. and uh, my pastor was from Georgia, the mm-hmm. App- Appalachia region. So mm-hmm. we learned the gospel through them. But um, yeah, I, I definitely, um, this reminds me of when I was published in the Colorado Review, I was published alongside um, a prisoner. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I'm thinking a lot of these poems, they should be submitted. Yes. You know? So maybe that's the next class. Yeah, that's what I'm trying to work on is, yeah. you know, find which find the best way for me to help them because they don't have access to computers, they don't have access yeah. to the internet. So just like, hey, how can I in this organization that I'm, you know, volunteering my time with, how can we help get this work out there? Because as you said, like some of these poems are feel like these people have been writing for a long time. And you know, some of them have been writing, some of them haven't, but still it's like I want to share these poems with the world like you know that's why i have this podcast and that's why i try to like bring you and you know together with these poets so you can help you know spread word about how great they're writing too but like check out check out colorado review i know they have um sometimes they have uh, submission opportunities and and ways to go about that but um they're they're one of the leaders i think in that um in um getting submissions from incarcerated folks poet lore as well yeah Perfect. I'll definitely take those suggestions into the classrooms and find out when their their um, submission how dates are. Reginald Dwayne Betts was published. He was in. A, he was. I heard this in an interview that he did that he that he was doing time, and they asked who wanted some books, and he asked for a poetry book, and they threw him a contemporary African American uh, anthology, and he started reading it, and he kept asking for more and more and. And um, he started writing after reading a lot and he started, he submitted to Poet Lore mm-hmm. and yeah, he was published, I, I believe when he was incarcerated in Poet Lore being his uh, first publication, yeah, which definitely. is like one of the most prestigious magazines in America. Oh yeah, I know. I would, I would, Reginald Dwayne Betts is like a dream get for this podcast and I've, I've yeah. met so many great people, but I would love to sit down and speak with him and talk about the poems and and fell in like his book was such a great book so oh, let's sure. put that into out into the world and see what comes back from it yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah i think that was that was kind of it from there i just want i'll just go into my thank yous from there i want to thank you for sitting down with me and being part of this i know the people in the program really appreciate you sharing your work and um I'm, i can't wait to give your feedback to them because i know they're going to be excited to hear it no likewise it was my honor to read these poems and um, to hear the voices and the attention to form and, and pace and wordplay and everything that, that uh, makes contemporary poetry so great, especially coming from neighborhoods like um, folks um, like I grew up with, you know. So, you know, the next step, hopefully submit them. And, and uh, just thanks for the opportunity. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much. I want to thank Jose for sitting down with me today. I also want to thank the incarcerated folks in our program who shared their work with us, as well as the San Marcos Arts Council for making this project possible. A special thank you to our sound engineer, Nathan Parnell, and graphics designer, Jules Tunnell. Until next time, 